Hello and welcome to episode 42 of Cultural Capital. I'm Andy Hazel. I'm Anders Furs. And our beloved Eloise Ross will not be with us for today's recording, but she has given us a review of Joshua Z. Weinstein's Yiddish drama Menasha. We'll be looking at Greta Gerwig's Ladybird, opening the Cultural Capital Film Diary. But first, there's no point resisting it. It's all we're going to be hearing about for the next few weeks. It's Ryan Coogler's Black Panther. You're telling me that the king of a third world country runs around in a bulletproof cat suit? Why don't you ask him yourself? Because he's right outside. Bingo. My king. Stop it. The Black Panther lives. He's coming. That's damn calm. Watch me do my I hope you're ready, bro. Cause I'm just getting started. Let's have some fun. A decade ago, Marvel Studios began its Hollywood takeover with the release of the original Iron Man. Some 18 movies later, they revolutionized the formula with Black Panther. Based on a character who first appeared in 1966, the movie follows Chadwick Boseman as T'Challa, the king of fictional African nation Wakanda. To the outside world, Wakanda is a struggling third world country, but the nation sits on top of a mind-boggling amount of vibranium, a rare metal that they secretly harness to run their society, which is far more advanced than anything seen in the West. Standing opposite the Black Panther is Wakandan exile known as the Killmonger, charismatically played by Michael B. Jordan, a man who wants to challenge T'Challa for the throne so that the country can use its vibranium-led riches to challenge Western nations for global supremacy. In a clever reversal of roles, Martin Freeman plays the token white guy, a CIA agent, in Way Over His Head, and the supporting cast includes Florence Kasumba and Lupita Nyong'o as the King's Warrior Offsiders, Forrest Whitaker, Daniel Kaluuya, Andy Serkis, and Letitia Wright, obviously having the time of her life in a role reminiscent of 007's Q. This is much more than just a race-flipped superhero movie. At times, it feels like a genuine revolution in blockbuster movie making, not just in what it has to say, but in how it says it. Andy, did you buy into this revolution? Yeah, I find it really, really hard not to. Um, it's a phenomenal film. I can't. I, my jaw was open for most of this movie. I thought it was absolutely incredible. I couldn't believe it got greenlit. I couldn't believe the entire production made it to the point where you can just sit there and just go, oh, my God, this is so new. I mean, it was so brave. It's going to be, I mean, I'm sure almost everybody's going to be of the same opinion. This is a total game changer of a film. It's kind of hard to think of another film which is like. It just doesn't feel like a superhero movie at all. It almost no. makes begrudging concessions to the formula, um, which is great because if, if people remember our review of Wonder Woman, my number one complaint was that you know it, the last third is CGI bashing and it's pretty predictable, but there was a really good idea there that got committed out, I think. And in this case, it seems to have gotten through somehow. Um, first of all, it's amazing it's taken 52 years. <laughs> Yeah, um, yeah, to reach the big screen. Yeah, and it, and that it's done it maintaining the name Black Panther, which it lost for part of the seventies, I think, because it was because of the association with the radical militia group. Mm, um, mm. But the most amazing thing about it is the focus on character, which is pretty rare for a blockbuster superhero movie. The fact that it, it's so reverent and so informed by a Pan African mythology, which 
it's, I can't think of another film like I mean Queen of Cutway we reviewed like a, last year I think maybe the year before and that's also an African story with African people giving their own experience but I mean when you think about it like a lot of fuss was made about Moana's the way that they employed somebody to look at, pa- at Pacific mythology and to be able to integrate it sensitively into the story this is just flaws that oh I mean, yeah totally it sort a, of makes everything else look a bit tokenistic especially and other superhero movies of a joke yeah 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 exactly even it did make me rethink not that we should be pitting these films against each other, but it did make me recrystallize my mind, my approach to Wonder Woman. This felt far more revolutionary yeah. than Wonder Woman did. You're exactly right. Like it is, it, it's sort of hard to overstate just how interesting the film's politics are and almost unheard of in Hollywood movie making. And I think this actually reflects that finally things are changing in Hollywood after decades of essentially white supremacy. It's quite incredible to watch a movie that's not made in that mould and to then go, actually, I'll, I'll make this point again when we talk about Ladybird in a different context, but the idea of like, it just makes you think about how poorly served we've been by yes, mainstream American filmmaking for so long. I think you're right. If at times it feels almost like a James Bond esque. Definitely, there was a whole sw- section in the middle which reminded me very much of that. In uh, fact, yeah, that whole scene sequence was great. I love that sort of international excursion because the the action is pretty well filmed during those scenes. There's so many interesting elements. What I find particularly interesting is the two central performances because I think they sort of muddle. Well, they don't not muddle, but they complicate what could otherwise be a fairly simplistic tale like i found michael b jordan as the ostensible bad guy so compelling and so charismatic and so interesting that i ended up sort of rooting for yeah, him like it is, i kind yeah. of was yeah. on his side as opposed to the very serious very noble uh, mm. black panther character i don't want to sp- i won't spoil it I, I will not spoil it but he says he says michael b jordan says this sort of extraordinary line it's the right at the end of the film. In fact, I think it's the last line that he maybe delivers. And it sort of summed up, I think, the film's politics. And it was extremely powerful. Yeah, yeah. And it was coming from the vi- the ostensible villain. Yeah. Mm. That's what I found really interesting. Yeah, and I also really appreciate the lengths that Kugler goes to to not give us the magical Negro. Mm-hmm. So it's it's not like Wakanda is an endemic paradise. There are There are tensions within it, even though it's created as this singular African nation that was never subject to colonialism. This is the one pure country that they could never reach because of an impenetrable mountain pass or a forest that was very thick or some sort of geographical impediment that meant that the colonialists could never get there. And so it's this kind of pure kingdom that's seen as a third world country but is actually secretly... You know, miles ahead of everybody else. Incredibly wealthy, yeah, a technologically advanced society. I love how all the all the white people are referred to as colonizers in the movie, which is again serving you to remind you of this sort of broader political context. Like the film is very unafraid to shove this context in our faces. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, but it never feels like it. It's always part of a bigger story. Exactly. And so actually, this is about the only superhero movie I've ever seen where I've gone, I could have actually gone for longer. I would have appreciated more (laughs) world building because I think it has more in common with Star Wars and Lord of the Rings in that it has this meticulously brand new, created brand new land that you've never seen before. And I just wanted to spend more time in the streets and see what else was going on there. Um, which hopefully we'll be able to get with the inevitable sequels because I'm predicting this is going to be a pretty colossal hit. Uh, oh, well, I hope so. It deserves to be. The soundtrack, I want to give oh a shout out yes. as well. Yeah. All the drumming and the Kendrick Lamar music, it's pretty awesome. 
it's a distinctive soundtrack in a way that we haven't really had in superhero movies for a little while yeah, at it, least. Yeah, you know? it really doesn't feel like it. There's this amazing. I do. Re- sorry, this is a tangent, but I do recommend Dan Golding, a film studies scholar from Swinburne, uh, made an amazing video essay just on how film scores have changed and how this idea that Hollywood's less interested in making you know stuff that you remember and it's all more about like you know propulsive. It's yeah. all about the kinetic energy of being in the moment of the film. Anyway, I felt this movie was working within that mode, but also with quite some quite distinctive transgressions which i really appreciated mm. yeah eloise did point out that i was dancing in my seat at one point which i don't remember yeah, you doing, were but I'm you sure. were yeah, i noticed right. that <laughs> okay yeah, i didn't notice but i did do a bit of research and ludwig goransson who did the score actually went to senegal and went to west africa and recorded some locals playing local music and incorporated yeah, cool. that into the film as well as we get some baba mal and some more traditional african stuff but then you know, the way that that is used and integrated by kendrick into this you know, killer soundtrack that I'm sure is going to do extremely well because it, it kind of does what the film does in that it gives you this myth- mythological past, which is very easy to romanticise and ignore the complexities of, but manages to sum it up so really beautifully and really powerfully with this sort of pan-African use of rhythm and uh, percussion. Mm. And then you know, sample that and update that with Kendrick and all the magic that he brings to this stuff. Um, there's an interesting story actually from Lupita Nyong'o that I heard about the filming of... There's, there's a very key part of the film in which the king's throne can be taken by a challenger, by a physical fight. Yes. And so this scene is played out at the top of a waterfall with all these people on these ledges up the waterfall, hundreds of people. And there's apparently a part where they were just resting between shots and the drummers who were there drumming started playing Snoop Dogg's Drop It Like It's Hot. And all the people who are on the ledges, who are from dozens of different countries, all knew the song. And so suddenly it's this thing where the music is just like encompassing the whole world, you know, yeah. rhythmically, and everybody can join in. Yeah, cool. And it feels like that's what the film is doing because I'm not, I'm not going to give away the stakes of them, but your standard stakes for a, for a Hollywood blockbuster superhero movie are the world is going to end or a massive city is going to be destroyed or something like that. And this managed to subvert it in a sort of a get-out-influenced way, which I was really blindsided by. And I was like, oh, my God, this is genius. Why have we not seen this sort of level of stakes before, which I'm not going to spoil? Not only is it pan-African, but it's also kind of acknowledging this is the root of humanity as well when it comes to delivering what, you know, um, Killmonger is threatening yes yes exactly i'm sorry to speak so um, elusively about it but i don't want to spoil anything it's yeah it's a yeah. it's a great um device i think that kugler employs i completely agree it's such a radical interesting marvel movie it's unlike any other marvel movie we've been treated to really i mean look i remember seeing the first iron man and being kind of blown away by how interesting it was for a a spectacle driven blockbuster movie and oh, they're in Iraq and, you know, here's this Tony Stark guy. and uh, But this sort of is ten times more interesting, I think. And do you have any criticisms? Yeah, I do. Yeah. I have a few. So yeah. basically the number one problem with superhero movies is the superhero is indestructible. They'll face all sorts of threats, yes, exactly. but it's not going to yeah. like they're going to die. Yeah. So he has a bulletproof thing. Uh, yeah, so, costume, it, yeah, so it's it, it, it to... absorbs the kinetic energy of the attacks against him. So, <laughs> you know, it's an awesome device. <laughs> And I'm amazed it hasn't been used before. It probably has at some point. But, yeah, that was a little... Um, the threats, you know, they never feel that huge against him. For stuff that other people are being threatened with and what the world might happen to the world and that sort of stuff is, is particularly huge. But you never think Black Panther is ever going to cark it. Uh, also, they cover so much ground. I mean, this movie is 2 hours 15 minutes, but they, there's so much jam-packed into it that some scenes necessi- you know, necessitate dialogue that gets you from point A to point B very quickly. And so sometimes the dialogue I would have 
you know, like to, uh, to be a little more refined mm. in a way. That seems like the wrong word, but a bit more engaging. And there, there is a lot of action, but there's also heaps of characterization. So by the time you get to the predictable sh- showdown in the last third of the movie, you actually kind of know who, who is who and what their interest is. Yeah, yeah, why yeah. they're there. Right? Why they're there, yeah, who yeah. they're fighting, who they're... Which is not something you always get in this kind of a movie yeah a superhero movie. yeah it's a yeah. common complaint against other ones yeah um how about you did you have any criticisms uh not particularly i agree with you on those points the stakes thing is always interesting i thought it mainly succeeded in being its own standalone thing you know yeah the, it does you don't have to have seen another marvel movie no to get no this. and oftentimes these do sort of function as semi-commercials for the rest of the marvel universe but in this case very much no do i have any criticisms not particularly. I thought the last battle was kind of ridiculous, but that's fine. This is the kind of movie that... Uh, I mean, if there's going to be any kind of a movie that has a ridiculous final battle, it's a superhero movie. So I'm not going to begrudge it that necessarily. Honestly, no, because it, it, it really... It's stuck to its politics and its point of view in a way that so many other movies of its ilk will gesture to and then walk that back, walk yeah, that gesture yeah. back, or will pretend to be, but then there's a conservatism inherent to a lot of those, yeah, things, which yeah. I found entirely absent from this film, like completely, actually. It yeah. was so, it had such a confident energy, confident sense of itself confident sense of what it was doing it was not going to take a 50 person committee although i'm sure there was a 50 person committee involved in making it but it doesn't feel like it the way that say other films that attempt to do say something often do so i Mm. really my criticisms are quite limited right yeah well i think we're unlikely to see a better costume like ray array of costumes in a film so shout out yeah. to ruth e carter's costuming because that's just completely Fantastic. bananas i don't know if anybody's seen photographs of the purple carpet premiere that happened in la yes. a couple of weeks ago yeah. amazing outfits on that <laughs> carpet Fantastic. as well but this is like i was just blown away by the, the level of detail the diversity the colors the movement that they offer when Lapita Nyong'o is doing her martial arts and stuff is just all so beautifully put together. Also, shout out to um, Rachel Morrison cinematography, Oscar-nominated Rachel Morrison oh. from Mudbound, first yeah, ever yeah, cinema- yeah. female cinematographer in the 90-year history. Cool. So, yeah, incredible work there as well. I do believe she's also worked on The Hills. Is <laughs> she? Someone, someone was like, this is the first crew member from The Hills ever to be nominated for an Oscar. So there you go. <laughs> Uh, that's, that's great news, man. <laughs> paving, uh, paving the way in so many ways. Go, Rachel. Um, yeah. yeah, but yeah, no, I really recommend seeing this film. It's it will give you a lot to think and talk about, and I just hope it's the start of something and not the exception to the norm. Yes, I think I feel like it could be. I feel like it could well, be. Well, yeah, I mean, now a DC extended universe or whatever they call it, they're going to go, well, okay, we've got up one up Black Panther with something more radical and there's going to have no white people at all or something like that. Is there going to be some sort of level of competition that this kicks off? Because no doubt everybody looked at Wonder Woman and went, oh, okay, this is what we can do and make hundreds of millions of dollars from. So Yes, finally, after, I mean, it's just extraordinary, isn't it? Isn't it? Extraordinary, like it it's is, just yeah. Both, are, both of these characters are like half a century old, and they're like finally getting 1966 people, yeah. and finally, yeah, it is mind boggling actually. And it shows that progress is a struggle, progress is <laughs> yeah. never inevitable. So, yeah, I mean, I guess the other thing, you know, I just would like more world building, more, more characters, more Black yeah. Panther. That's the only thing I complain I've got. Yeah. Uh, the other thing is we're ob- obviously both very sort of sympathetic <laughs> to the film's politics, I would say, as, as left-leaning. Yeah. Lovers. 
But what I really love about the movie is it really challenges, I don't know, it challenged my personal ideology as well. And so what I'm saying is I'm not just saying this because I agree with the film's politics. I think it's a genuinely well-made film and that just increases its impact. Yeah, because it's interesting looking at the Get Out and the way that that took white supremacy and black identity and made it in, into a horror film. This one does it, but it does it in... It, there's a comedic element to it. A lot of the times that yeah. particularly Letitia Wright's character Shuri will make jokes about the colonialist or refer to Martin Freeman as yeah, the American... Coloniser. Yeah, that sort of stuff. And yeah. that's the, so it's done like in this quite comedic way, which is like where you, you know, it, these things are raised and they're treated seriously, but they're also laughed at. Yeah, yeah. Which is and then they're, all, and, and then they're also uh, treated seriously. I mean, yeah, in a, in a humorous way too, like the introduction to the villain when he's um, Michael B. Jordan's character, he's at the British Museum and he's getting a tour of their African collection and... He says, oh, I'm going to steal this one. And the white British museum employee says, oh, no, you can't do that. Stealing's against the law or whatever. And he says, oh, well, how do you think your ancestors got this? Like, it's just full of yeah. of that kind of stuff, which I found, I I mean, my God, I just, it's still sort of pinching myself that I, that I got this from a Disney yeah. movie, from a Marvel movie, <laughs> yeah. ultimately a Disney movie. Yeah. Like, it's quite, it's, it's quite amazing. Yeah, it is. And also a shout out to Andy Serkis's, um villain as yes, well. Yes, he was great, wasn't he? It was, great to, good to, it was really good to see him. In, yeah, not, yeah, Not exactly. as a gorilla not or golem. Yeah. And I loved those scenes in South Korea with him. They're filmed like in this really interesting kind of way, which is a distinct style from the rest of the film, where the cameras are like swirling around these characters. And he's like, he plays this sort of unhinged uh, sort of smuggler kind of guy. And uh, just the way he's sort of laughing and like looking at people off camera while the camera like swirls around him and he's like unleashing chaos. I found it really, really cool. Like it was really, yeah, really confidently directed. Mm, yeah. And also the way they integrated technology. They don't spend any time explaining how, what the technology is and how it works. You just understand sort of very quickly, very visually moves. that you can yeah. sit in an invisible car which is something they never could, could never do in James Bond, but they do it brilliantly here. Yeah, you sit in an yeah. invisible car and control a car in another part of the world. You don't need to have Q explain that to you. Yeah, no, it's it sure just, just, just yeah, it just is. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, no, I, I think this is a great film. Really recommend it, and I want to talk to people about it. So more people go see it, please, yeah. and talk to me about it because it's, it's really interesting. Mm, definitely. To the Cultural Capital Film Diary. On Saturday the 17th of February, Astor is showing both Alien and a 70mm print of the special edition of Aliens. The following night, it's all early 70s Jack Nicholson that you can squeeze into one evening with a double bill of Easy Rider and The Last Detail. Also on the 25th, you can see both Paddington and the best rated film in cinema history, as of February 11, Paddington 2. Over at Acme, you can catch the documentary Boys, Art as a Weapon, about visionary sculptor and performance artist Joseph Boys. That runs from February 19th until March 12th. If you're a fan of conservationist Jane Goodall, and it's unlikely you're not, you can catch Brett Morgan's intimate documentary Jane, which runs from February 15. Also at Acme, the Women in Film Festival runs from February 22 to 25, opening with a rare opportunity to see Shelley Barrett's romantic comedy Love Serenade. Women in Film is unsurprisingly showcasing the work of Australian women in cinema. Other screenings include Margot Nash's Exploration of Identity and Childhood, The Silences, Tori Garrett's harrowing documentary about sexual abuse at a prestigious school, Don't Tell, and a whole host of short films, panel discussions and workshops. 
Finally, over at Cinema Nova and at the Loop Bar, the Transitions Film Festival runs from February 22 until March 9. Transitions offers a range of films that explore cutting-edge ideas, creative innovations and trends from around the world. Films include endangered species documentary The Last Animals, the acclaimed Chasing Coral, a Jeff Bridges narrated Living in the Future's Past, and an exploration of how mindfulness is changing prisons and schools, May I Be Happy. Ladybird, is that your given name? Yeah. Why is it in quotes? I gave it to myself. It's given to me by me. Ladybird always says that she lives on the wrong side of the tracks, but I always thought that that was like a metaphor. But there are actual train tracks. What she did was very baller. It was very anarchist. Put the magazine back! <laughs> she has a big heart, your mom. She's warm, but she's also kind of scary. You can't be scary and warm. I think you can. Your mom is. Few films from the last year have attracted as much attention and praise as Greta Gerwig's directorial debut, Ladybird, in which Sasha Ronan plays a 17-year-old Christine McPherson who adopts the eponymous Ladybird as a way to instigate her own persona. Gerwig focuses on her senior year at a Catholic high school as Ladybird tries to wrest control of her relationships, appearance, and, as the film progresses, her relationship with her mother, played by Laurie Metcalf. If you've seen the film Frances Ha, written by Gerwig and the film's director Noah Baumbach, you'll know to expect a character-driven comedy drama with some fiery dialogue and a mix of aesthetic observations and pop culture chat with some deep insights into personal relationships. Nominated for five Academy Awards, including a nomination for Best Director, which makes Gerwig the fifth woman to ever be nominated in that category, Lady Bird's coming-of-age story seems to have captured a moment. Anders, did you fall for Lady Bird? I did. Uh, it caught me. Yes, I, I really liked this film a lot. And much like Black Panther made me reevaluate all the dross we've been fed uh, through superhero movies, so too did Lady Bird, was Lady Bird so well made, I retrospectively realised that most coming-of-age movies are just not that great. Like, this is, or not, as, not nearly as good as, this is how you do it. Mm. And this is really, I mean, that's the strength of the film. It's... At the, so at the centre we have the self-titled lady, but she, she gives herself that name, doesn't she? She does. Play wonderful performance by Saoirse Ronan, who has been nominated for her third Oscar, yeah. I think, yeah. which is quite amazing. She's, yeah, she's great. And I think that performance actually opens, in many ways opens the film up to her character. I've seen some criticisms of people who can't really stand her as a character, really, which I, I think is an unfair observation to make because I think Gerwig is extremely sympathetic towards her but she's a very sort of precocious teenager who she's self-involved she's working things out she's you know she's the kind of person who changes her name to Ladybird I guess yeah so <laughs> that may put you off but I think because of that because of Saoirse's performance and Gerwig's very sort of warm attitude towards her um the film ends up sort of celebrating her which I and I ended up celebrating her you know so she may be a difficult character but the film nevertheless has a very strong warmth and generosity towards her which is how I um, felt about her towards um, the end of the film there's a lot of other things to talk about but um, just speaking about her and her trajectory distinctly I really liked how the film captured just how messy self-growth, self-actualization is. Like a lot of the times in movies, it's, it's a very sort of neat progression arc and the main character, you know, stands up to their demons or does the right thing and, you know, all is wonderful in the end. 
Whereas this, I think, is far more nuanced. And so even though she is going on a journey of self-actualization, it's messy. She regresses at multiple points. It's not like she clicks her fingers and does the right thing. And I think that is what makes the film particularly good. And I don't want to sort of spoil the ending, but I think it's that um, the, that recognition that life is complicated is something that a lot of films, I think, pay lip service to, but Lady Bird really acknowledges and embraces. Uh, what did you think, Andy? Yeah, well, um, listeners will know that both Eloise and I picked this as our number one film of last year because we managed to see an earlier press screening and a lot of fuss Indeed. was happen- happening in the US because it was released back in October, I think, or maybe early November there. I thought this was incredible uh, for a lot of reasons, a lot of the reasons you already expressed, but also I think that this is almost more Laurie Metcalf's movie than Sasha Ronan's because so much is put down to the relationship between the mother and daughter, which seems to be a really important point for for these sorts of of coming-of-age stories that are better than others. Like we reviewed Edge of Seventeen last year, which had Hayley Steinfeld as... You know, this also similarly troubled teen that was alienated a lot, of, a lot of people because people either have not known a girl coming of age or not been one or found some sort of difficulty in having the patience to accompany them through all these learning experiences. And in that film, she had this great relationship with her teacher, Woody Harrelson, as well as, you know, a less great relationship with other adults. In this case, there's so much generosity in, in Greta Gerwig's script. No one's bad. People are complicated and people make mistakes, but there's no no one's no, condemned. Even, even the um, Lucas Hedge oh, yeah. character who, you know, um, is sort of like a distant boyfriend who yeah, she Danny. sees for a while, even he is given quite a generous, you know, we learn why he's acting that way. Like, uh, yeah, the, there's no bad people here. Yeah. They're all people, human beings, trying to do the best thing that they can. Yeah, and so many people are coming from a place of love and mm. trying to you know, better themselves. And so a lot of it is made of the impact of class on Lady Berg's family, the McPhersons, mm. particularly through uh, Marion McPherson, who's Laurie Metcalf's character. This is something you see kind of often played for laughs in comedies or sitcoms, but, you know, this class difference, like somebody's coming from New Jersey, so it's automatically assumed that you're going to have all these, you know, this baggage that comes along with that, for example. Whereas in Sacramento, we, you know, it's not a place you necessarily think of class being a big divider, but you know, there's the point made in the in the trailer about where Danny makes a joke about them being on the wrong side of the tracks, literally on the wrong literally, side of the tracks. Yeah. And then you know, for fun, they'll go to open house days and walk through these mansions and imagine what life would be like if they were rich enough to live in these sorts of big houses. And so it's the, the way that that's treated is this powerful factor that really just makes a lot of decisions for them, but it's also this incredibly poignant thing that it's a total struggle to break out of, and particularly in America where you're... You know, so much down, it comes down to where you're educated and what you want to do. And, you know, the decisions you make fairly early on can often have these huge ramifications later on and you're often condemned to repeating, you know, life within the same socioeconomic class as your parents, even, you know, despite being told you're in the land of the free and all that sort of stuff. So it's just looking at the impact of that on the family, I thought, made it even more powerful because that's often something that's just assumed. Like, you know, in teen comedies, often people are living in rich, in Beverly Hills or something like that, you know, if you look at Mean Girls or something like that. Yeah, Exactly. That's not really ever used. It doesn't really have a bearing on... Yeah, 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 exactly. Mm. So that was... I agree. I think um, the exploration of class was really interesting. She wants to leave this town. She won't possibly... She wants to go have co- go to college on the East Coast mm. where it's, you know, more intellectual. And yeah, more it's to- but it's totally a romanticised version where writers yes. live in woods. Yes, exactly, <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. And I feel no... But, but I look back to when I was a teenager growing up in a small town and it was the exact same thing. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I was so precocious I bloody wanted to go to college at Brett East Nellis's, um 
alma mater <laughs> in that he something. wrote about in um, the secret in, uh, oh. in the rules of attraction. No, Bennington, Bennington College. This, anyway, it yeah. was sixty. Well, so did she. Year, so. <laughs> yeah, I know. So I really related to her on that fundamental. Yeah, and I think uh, a lot of people will. A lot of I mean, a lot of people seem to. Yeah. I mean, there's been yeah. a whole spate of of articles about how many women contact had to call their mothers after they came out of seeing, from seeing Ladybird. Yeah. Well, I mean, that, and that relationship with her mother is just beautifully presented from you know it's a very explosive relationship they're arguing all the time and then the next minute she's taking him her to the op shop to try on formal dresses uh, that was a beautiful scene. oh god yeah there's a lot of beautiful things but that is a pretty key one uh yeah laurie metcalf's performance is fabulous i thought um, yeah and having seen i Tanya, there's no competition like she knocks alice and jenny's one note performance out of the park for me yeah, as yeah much yeah. as i adore alice and jenny as does everybody but yeah. they're the two front runners for that no, best supporting actress. Yeah, she she's great. I thought Tracy Letts. Tracy Letts was fantastic. Was too. fantastic yeah. as um as a husband. Yeah, these good people trying to make it work with a very fiery daughter. It's because the film is so generous to all of these people. At no point does it sort of teeter off into the world of the absurd or or caricatures or caricature. Maybe slightly ish with the Timothy Chalamet. As the like, you know, distant hipster guy who's like always reading philosophy. Although we all knew that guy in high school, anyway. So, um, <laughs> or were him in some cases? Or were him. <laughs> not, not in your case, I'm sure. No, no. But no, I mean that was really interesting actually. He, yeah. When he turned up and he started having this non-communicative, affected pseudo intellectuals thing where he'd carry around a battered paperback of probably Thoreau or, or Kerouac or something like that. Um, I was immediately reminded of Gilmore Girls and the way that Rory goes from a blonde-haired nice guy. Um, and it doesn't really work out with him to a you know disaffected pseudo intellectual guy with brown hair. <laughs> I think I might be the only person who may, who's making this connection. But also, it is interesting actually thinking of that because of the way that they treat class in Gilmore Girls compared to the way it's treated here is totally different. Where it's like upper middle class to extreme upper class is the only yeah. Thing Gilmore Girls is like this fantasy town yeah. where everyone lives in McMansions, isn't it? Yeah, and it's not like yeah. Sacramento at all. Yeah. yeah, but it's the sort of place that she would dream about living. I think would be able to move to a place like Stars Hollow and live a life as a writer or something like that. Oh, don't we all? Yes, Andy, don't we all? <laughs> um, yeah. So look, I, I it was very emotional. I cried in. Yeah, quite a you're bit not of alone. It, a lot of people were really yeah. moved, and I think that's something that the trailer doesn't really let on. It gives you this idea that it's going to be a raucous comedy with a heart, but yeah. actually, it's it really yeah. sideswipes you. Yeah, it does. Yeah. And I, yeah, I mean that relation, that central relationship, is the key to all of that. And you know, it ends quite beautifully. It's just, it's beautifully judged. It's not over the top, and I think it. It gets that bittersweet messiness that is the process of finding yourself, which is a process that we all sort of are continually going in forever, really. I think it gets that just right. And I think that's what makes the film quite good. Well, you know, low-key extraordinary, really, because yeah. I don't think a lot of coming-of-age movies get that right. They romanticise it or they shave off the rough edges. But, you know, becoming your own person is hard, particularly when you're a six. 17 year old in high school mm, yeah in sacramento definitely and it is really interesting even looking at this as being a coming of age film directed by a woman that's largely about or fairly autobiographical um to have it yeah. nominated for that many academy awards this feels like a to- another game-changing moment i mean i know i've used that word already this episode <laughs> but it really is i mean it's it's crazy and well yeah yeah the 
the institutional recognition from Hollywood that things are changing. I mean, it feels like they are. Yeah, because I can imagine a lot of you know elderly men in beef eating men in suits will be going. This is quite a slight story. This is not something we should be rewarding with you know Oscars. Mm-hmm. This is the sort of thing to appreciate, and that other people will like. But now it's 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 different. It's a different playing field, and it is fantastic that this is the film that they're putting getting behind in a lot of ways. I mean, it's going to be up against I think Get Out for best original screenplay, and it's going to be a showdown between those two. But, I mean, it's certainly... I can't wait to see what's going to happen next with Greta Gerwig now that her profile's no. raised this much. I mean, it's 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 really, really interesting. Also interesting uh, the way that it ties into Frances Ha, where, in, in a way where, you know, I don't want to spoil anything, but, you know, there is a West, East Coast-West Coast tension <laughs> in for Lady Bird, uh, and Frances Ha kind of fills in a lot of the blanks later on um, yeah, in a way definitely. that will become apparent to anybody who's seen that film when they watch this. So it is kind of really, really interesting the way that this is kind of a post-girls tale of you know anxieties and tension and all sort of the angst that comes with being you know in your late teens and early 20s but it's just rendered so well and so with such broad appeal even though it's so personal it's quite a gift to be able to do that i think and gerwig's head and shoulders above most people when it comes to writing about this sort of stuff oh i yeah complete i completely agree um and yeah watch this and you sort of realize oh this is this is how this kind of film uh, can be made. I yeah, I, I really don't have much negative to say about it, really. Yeah, actually, that's a good point. We haven't really criticised it much yet. Mm, no, I'm <laughs> sorry. I mean, it's the, it was the best film of last year for me. Yeah, I, well, yeah, it was your number one. So, yeah. um, and you know, it was up there for me too. It was a wonderful, wonderful picture. Um, do recommend if you want to have a little cry yes. and think about life. <laughs> Which I mean, what more do you want from the movies? Exactly. <laughs> Why can't I just make the eggs? Because you take too long, you make a big mess, and I have to clean the whole thing up. Eggs aren't good for the environment anyways. What? You heard her. Mm. Quickly, please. Look at all these pictures. Every newspaper looks like USA Today. Shelly and I are trying to be vegan. Hence the soy milk. You wear leather jackets. But they're vintage, so they don't support the industry. They aren't done. There's white stuff. You know how much you have brambles? Pigs are smarter than him, even. I never thought brambles was a genius, okay? Mom, the eggs are not done. Fine, make your own fucking eggs. I wanted to. You won't let me. Sister doesn't like me. I'm hungry. She does. There's your chance. Go to bed. Finally, for this episode, we'll hear from Eloise, who couldn't make it to today's recording. And here she is with her review of Joshua Z. Weinstein's Yiddish comedy drama, Menashe. Menasha is a week-long snapshot of a man's life as he comes to terms with being a widower a year after his wife's death and tries to prove himself as a worthy guardian for his own son. Filmed and set in Borough Park, Brooklyn, Menasha is a seemingly unobtrusive observation of a man's life and also one driven by a desire to depict and understand the rarely seen on-screen Hasidic Jewish community whose tradition does not allow for Menasha as a single man to look after his nine-year-old child. Directed by the multi-talented Joshua Weinstein, Menasha opens beautifully, unassuming, soft focus capturing people walking along the street, going about their business, jetic silence giving centre stage to a musical soundtrack by Aaron Martin and Swedish musician Doug Rosenqvist that has strains of a Nick Cave and Warren Ellis type score. This opening establishes the way that the film will progress with a stable handheld camera effect that supports the tentative nature of the story, the characters and the entire filming process. This style suits the aesthetic of the film, the atmosphere of the location, one that is in flux and sometimes unstable for its residents. Weinstein has said that they often shot from a block away with 400mm lenses so that actors could kind of forget and just be in the community and be in their city. 
There's a particularly beautiful shot where the main character and his son, Riven, are playing in the park at dusk, not speaking, but surrounded by the gentle hum of children. And then they watch the light of the city across the water from a hill, recalling a number of other New York films. Weinstein has spoken of some other filmmakers like John Cassavetes as his career inspiration, but recapturing through a unique lens. There's a really beautiful shot a bit later in the film, of men dancing in a circle and singing in celebration, but rather than a dark sky behind them, the frame is mostly filled with smoke rising from a fire, the city painted with a wonderful aliveness. Joshua Weinstein has spoken of authenticity as integral to this film, to their filmmaking process and the finished product. In this attention to the location and the community, and without passing judgment on any of its characters and allowing for human understanding to manifest in their interactions, Menasha is a terrific film. There's even a bit of humour in there. Menasha, who works in a grocery store, in the opening scene doesn't want to sell unwashed lettuce to his friendly customers, and his manager says, you're such an extremist. But at the same time, it doesn't take itself lightly and the theme of need of reciprocal support between family and community members and even a pet chicken comes through in every scene. Many of the actors had never even seen a film before as they are all really ultra-Orthodox Jews who must avoid many forms of media, I learned, which was a challenge and I'm not sure the extent to which the film project altered or threatened their lives in the Hasidic community. But what emerges is kind of this beautiful story between a man and his son who need each other even if neither can provide exactly what society or culture demands of them. Menasha is a wonderful film and a really rich portrait of a community not often seen on screen. Check it out. Aber was trägst du dich der Hitler oder Reckel wie alle? Wer das wollte euch gesagt hätte? Hast du schon wieder gekost? Die bist schon ein Jude Armen. Also der Pulse gesucht. Leute, wie euch so dem Liesler war da. And Menashe is currently screening at Cinema Nova. And that brings us to the end of episode 42. Thank you very much for sticking with us. And if you'd like to rate or review us on iTunes, we'd be incredibly grateful. You can follow us on Facebook at Cultural Capital Podcast. We're on Twitter at The Cold Cap Pod. You can find me at Andrew T. Hazel. I'm at Anders Furs. Thank you very much. We think you're great. Mm-hmm.